Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this new podcast series, we explore elements of American opera, production and reception histories, social contexts, historical valences, and more through our artist and scholar community. How do you give birth to an opera? In this episode recorded in 2020, the creators of the world premiere opera Eurydice, Matthew Ockoin and Sarah Rule, reveal their process, the inspirations, and hurdles. Soprano Danielle Denise, who originated the role of Eurydice, joins the conversation, along with LA Opera's president and CEO, Christopher Kelsch. Tickets to LA Opera's 22-23 season are available now at laopera.org. Good evening, everyone. I am thrilled because this is a rare opportunity that we have, not only to have such a distinguished panel of people, some of whom are sitting very far away from me, hi Danielle, (laughs) but that we have an opportunity to discuss in a kind of chronological fashion how this extraordinary piece was born. I've had the privilege of working in a very tangential way to guide this piece for a couple of years now, and I couldn't be more excited and more proud of the work and more excited to share it with you. And I would say that uh, we're now exactly a week into rehearsals and the atmosphere in the room is electric. And I think everyone feels that we're on the verge of something very, very special. So we're excited to give you a little sneak peek. So I'm gonna start with Sarah. Your play, of course, was the inspiration for the opera. So can we talk about your inspiration for the play? I started the play when I was 25, which I realized was the age Matt was when he started writing the opera. And I was always fascinated by the myth of Orpheus. And so many artists, so many great artists have cut their teeth on that myth, but very few have actually treated the subjectivity of Eurydice. Many, many men have tackled it and many, many men have gone back to the well of Orpheus. But I was fascinated by Eurydice because she was opaque and because she died twice and because she had this extraordinary journey of being in love and then dying and then having the promise of coming back and then not coming back. And I felt like we'd never seen that story before. So I started writing with that intention. When I was 20, my father died of cancer and I was very, very close with my father. So it made sense to me following Eurydice into the underworld that she might meet ancestors there. And in this case, she meets her father. And I think the play was for me an opportunity to have more conversations with him. And I think I was also really interested in the idea of music and language, that music was Orpheus's way of expressing his his life and his joy, and that for Eurydice, it was language. So in my version, she calls out to him, Orpheus, at the penultimate moment, and he turns around. So I just wanted to give her a little more voice, a little more agency in that event. Did you, did you start with Ovid as the inspiration, and why, why was this myth in particular in your, in your head? I mean, God only knows why that myth <laughs> was stuck in my head. I mean, funnily enough, I had seen Mary Zimmerman's Metamorphosis and been really inspired by it. I also was really inspired by a poem by Rilke called Eurydice Orpheus Hermes. And it talks about how Eurydice was almost pregnant with her death. The idea is she she almost becomes... 
he's he's one of the few male poets who I feel like actually looked at the event through her eyes. So those two are influences. And then I, I don't know. I don't know. I think there's something of great mystery about the moment when he turns. And that's why we keep turning to it because no one, it's inexhaustible. And it has to do with faith and love and grief. And those are the big inexhaustible themes. And talk about the, the trajectory of the play. You wrote it and then, and then what happened? Well, I wrote it and then I said, why won't anyone do my play? <laughs> the way playwrights do. So then I, I had 13 stage readings before anyone did it, which was kind of a record, I think, for development in the American theater. And then a small company in Madison, Wisconsin, which has since closed, which I blame on myself, did the play. Actually, it was a beautiful production. I think there were other reasons. And then I did more of a a kind of penultimate production at, at Berkeley Rep, directed by Les Waters. And then that production went to Yale, and then that production went to New York at Second Stage, and, um, and then it started being done around the country. Do you have the statistics at hand about how often? I mean, this is one of the most produced plays in the American theater now, right? I, I'm Second only to Death of a Salesman. You could ask my mother. <laughs> I'm sure my mother has all the, the numbers. Uh, so, Matthew, what was your first exposure to either the play or to Sarah's work? Well, I have two people to thank. Uh, one is my younger sister, Christine, who is an avid student of the theater uh, and who, who recommended Sarah's work to me. And also Andre Bishop from Lincoln Center Theater, who was involved in this process through their collaboration with the Met. You know, I, I read the play and I wept and I wrote to you and we got together and and sort of that was that. I'd already had the idea of doing something with the Orpheus story because I also am a little bit obsessed with it. I think over the course of our early conversations, I became a little bit depressed about the idea of approaching it again from the perspective of, of tortured male narcissism alone and quickly <laughs> evolved from saying, how about we work together to adapt the Orpheus story to actually let's just adapt the play. I, I learned very quickly that every time I tried to deviate from the play, the play has this kind of internal force field that sucked me back in. And so we ultimately didn't, didn't change very much at all. I think one of the remarkable things about the play is that the first time you read it, it's sort of, it's crying out in a way to be set to music. I mean, there's so much space in it. And for me, it, it definitely has a sense of the uncanny that feels somehow vaguely described operatic to me. It, it, it felt like a very natural source for adaptation. So when, when Matt approached you about the, the adaptation, um, you thought... I thought, how wonderful this this young artist seems brilliant. We had a natural synergy. And I think, I mean, Matt and I both have a secret love of poetry and both secretly write poetry. And I think Eurydice, of all of my work, is a bridge between my life as a poet and my life as a playwright. And I think poems like librettos leave a lot of space for imagination, for silence, for music, for the music of reading, for the music of imagination, for the music of future collaborators who you haven't met. So, and it was written in three movements. It was written with a chorus. So the stones, there's a chorus of stones, which are like a Greek chorus. So there were a lot of things about it that felt 
musical already. And then talk about the process of collaboration and bringing the, the work together. Uh, I think it was unusually smooth. I think that's safe to say. Um, we, we were not at each other's throats. We did not, you know, refuse to meet in person like Strauss and von Hofmannsthal or anything like that. You know, I, it, it tended to be, once we got over the initial decisions, it was largely that I would go away and work for three weeks and get stuck on something and call Sarah and she would have a, an elegant solution immediately to hand. And then I would bring that back and then call her three weeks later. I mean, it was, you know, also the play is not like a Shakespeare play where there are 10 million words and you have to cut out 85% of them to turn, you know, Othello into Othello or whatever. The play has a spareness, which means that we probably were able to keep 80% of the play rather than throwing it away. I should do a word count sometime. We should do that. It was, it was, it was a process of distillation, and it's true that Matt would call me from a field in Vermont with the wind blowing and say, I'm, I'm having tr- I have a question about this scene, and then I would explain the scene, and then he would run away and write something brilliant and send me a photograph of the, the pencil line and the staff, and that would make my day because it was such an excitement, you know, to see the, the pencil line of a great melody. But even the first time I read the play... Uh, I knew what voice type would be which character, for example. It just felt totally inevitable. Uh, Eurydice would be a a soprano, a lyric soprano. Orpheus, I had this idea that because Orpheus has a split nature, you know, he's a human being who has this strange superhuman gift. And also in Sarah's play, it's not even just that he's human, he's also fairly immature and not great at communicating and a little bit sullen and narcissistic as, as musicians can be, not present company excluded, of course. Um, it's just the male ones. <laughs> I not wanted that to find I've ever way. dated a musician. Right, exactly. Sarah has <laughs> deep experience. Um, I wanted to find a way to musicalize that split. Um, and so I had this Im- idea immediately that Orpheus should actually be two singers and that there's a baritone. And when Orpheus is fully in human mode, we only hear the baritone. Because what is more of a regular guy voice type than a good old baritone? But when Orpheus shows flashes of this superhuman side, he's joined by a countertenor as a kind of halo of sound hovering above the baritone. Um, And this became very interesting, sort of this presence of Orpheus's double. And I think we sort of left it open-ended whether the double is visible, whether he's a dramatic presence in, in this production, he is. But also, I don't think Eurydice quite sees him, though she senses that there's something about her boyfriend that she doesn't quite understand. Um, and Hades, the, the villain, I knew immediately had to be actually a very high tenor. Villains in opera tend to be basses. You know, they tend to be sort of the grand inquisitor or pick your, pick your base villain. But I had this idea that because Hades in Sarah's play is a little bit absurd, he's this, he appears first as a skeezy businessman type. And then later he appears and he's 10 feet tall and he's on stilts. I wanted to create the effect that he's kind of on helium. Uh, you know, he's this denizen of, of hell. And he, when he comes up to the human world, he doesn't quite know how ridiculous he sounds, but of course he sounds completely ridiculous. And I think that's another thing about the play that I really appreciate is just that there is this sense of the surreal and there's this sense of humor. You know, it is ultimately a tragedy, but it's also extremely funny. And I think that's something opera sorely needs. 
And I must say, I wasn't sure that was possible in opera. Right, you asked that. I was, you know, being sort of slightly virginal in the opera world, I thought, well, can there be moments of humor? But I feel Matt really found them and that Matt was able to rhythmicize human speech in this really interesting and sometimes absurd way. And the, the presence of the Orpheus double gave me something that I never anticipated, which I loved. And, you know, today at rehearsal, we were doing one of their arias and I got to sit right here with them singing right there. And it encapsulated for me this idea of the artist as otherworldly and also the idea of the artist as slightly beyond gender. You know, there's something about a countertenor's voice that's kind of ethereal and feminine. And I think all really great artists have a kind of incandescent quality that's that's beyond gender too i don't return to this but i want to make sure we bring danielle in early and often so then talk about your approach because then you carry the burden to some degree of it's not exactly a dramatic monologue for soprano but you uh, are carrying a huge burden in this particular evening and so talk about when you first encountered the work and then what the process has been for you in creating this well, I first encountered the music. I would say it's so funny because these projects take a long time to sort of come to life. And then once you're in it, you sort of feel as if you've been with it forever. But it was probably it's 18 months. Probably. Yeah, something like a year and a half ago, a summer ago, um, not this, this past summer, that I started to look through the first fragments of the score. And interestingly, when I never told you this, but one of the first things that I came away thinking was that not only was this a great bit of music, but it was a great piece of theater. And I felt that even listening to it, that one needed the orchestra, one needed to experience this as a piece of theater and not just as a vocally sung piece. And it's so funny talking about Eurydice and words because in a way, this couldn't be a more perfect role for me to come back to LA to do because as an artist, I am so word-based um, and I've banged on about it, you know, to anyone who listen and anybody who kind of asks me a little bit of delving into what it is that makes me the artist that I am, uh, they usually hear, hear me talk about the idea that I don't it's one of the things I find frustrating about singing is that one has to be slightly vain about one's vocal instrument. And it's something that goes so counterintuitive to my whole being. I don't see singing as something vain. I see something, I see singing as a communicative element. And it's, it's whenever I'm performing, the very first thing that starts in my mind is text-based. It has nothing to do with vocal production. And no matter how hard I try to wire myself differently, I just can't. I, I have to come from, and I mentioned it the other day, that I need to sometimes feel, think, have an impulse, and then that comes out through a word, and that word is embodied on a bed of sound, which is singing, but I never do it any other way. I, I actually physically can't, and I, tr I try to sometimes, because obviously I'm probably in the minority of singers that feel that way, though I know have many dear colleagues who do approach singing from an actor's point of view in terms of delivery of text. You know, a lot more of my colleagues will be like, la voce, la voce, la voce, la voce. You know, no, 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 no. I can't do that because of my voice. I have to think about this and, you know, my posizione and all of those things. And so to come here and do your Odyssey, which is, which is all about the love of language. And now it, it all makes sense to me. So I looked at this piece and I thought, you know, great, great vocal piece, but also 
this has to be experienced theatrically. And I felt that I wouldn't really know it until I was doing it and really devouring it. And then I started to get excerpts of it sent to me in all different parts of the world. So it would be emailed to me and I would send it to somebody who would print it and then mail it to me. I would look at portions and then I would see overlap and some changes and little things. I mean, this is a genius that we're talking with here, Matt. And, um, you know, he was unfurling these pages and pages and pages. And um, at a certain point, I kind of went, I think I need to see the score from page one to page 310 in one bound score because I started to have a pile, like Eurydice, a pile of books that I couldn't, I was like, I can't travel with this many act one and two, act two and three, the libretto act one and two, libretto act three. And I was like, oh, I needed just a full score. And so I got the full score a couple of months ago. And then I really, then I really was able to kind of open the first page and really go right down into it. And I have absolutely adored looking at this through both of your eyes and then also through my own. And I I was asked this earlier today in an interview about whether it's daunting to have a blank slate. Uh, And I, and I, of course, you know, I think there's nothing better than starting to create a role from scratch through a different ocular. It can seem daunting. It can seem like there's no one to study. There's no one to compare yourself to. There's no one, there's no model to follow. But I really feel that it was so important that we understand Eurydice from her own ocular. Because I did Eurydice, actually, in Orfeo and Eurydice, the Gluck opera, and now it would have been some years ago. And one thing I felt about her was, obviously, she was so she's so beautiful, even when she is only allowed to be reactive. And in Gluck's Orfeo, all she can do is react to that which she is given or that which she is told. And when she can't make sense of the world, she gets a beautiful lament and that's it. And then she dies. And to, to, to flesh out this well-known character, I think it's one of the reasons also why people return to Orpheus and Eurydice. I think because also the idea of Orpheus doing the impossible for love. It's fascinating. It's fascinating to think of what the underworld is like and the passage that he took and that so many people have looked at Orpheus and given and created a very rich life and story around his journey is I think why people continue to return to the well, as you said. So to come now and basically create Eurydice, it feels to me like from scratch, you know, even though there's a lot we know about her, to give her that kind of life is... I think it's going to be so rich for the audience as well, because again, it is filling in a lot of blanks that people, it's sort of, it answers questions you never knew you had, but they were always there. It's interesting. I hadn't focused on the fact that you'd done the Gluck, but of course you had, but actually thinking about Matt's score and the Gluck score, it's actually, it's the complete inverse that, that Orpheus is as much of a make, he makes a cameo, a series of cameo appearances as opposed to the way in which Eurydice is basically a, a secondary or sometimes tertiary character yeah. in the in the Gluck. And that's obviously, it's it's built into the piece. But had you wrestled with the incredible history of the Orpheus myth compositionally as you thought about your oh, version never of crossed it? my mind. Yeah. <laughs> no, of course I did. I mean, it's, it's I, I know and love those pieces. Um, I've conducted the Gluck a number of times, but I actually, I have some big problems with it, including the depiction of, of Eurydice. I mean, she, she can, probably not in your hands, Danny, but she can come off as a bit shrewish. She has this kind of slightly whiny aria and it's, it's just, it, I love the Monteverdi. I think that it's, it's profoundly irritating that the first opera 
that we have basically, you know, from 1607 actually does contain some of the absolute best music. I'm not sure we're ever going to match Pocente Spirito, the the big aria that that Orfeo has in that, you know, because the story sets you this impossible challenge of saying, you know, he arrives and then he sings the most beautiful music anyone's ever heard. Go ahead and compose it. No pressure. Um, And actually, I think Monteverdi sort of did with with, with that, which is is so wonderful. I also love a, a very different take on it, which is from the composer Harrison Birtwistle, who wrote a piece called The Mask of Orpheus in the 1980s, which is almost prohibitively expensive. It's, you know, multiple orchestras and a complex electronic setup and, and very dense, but, but very thrilling. cacophonous, very cacophonous. But, you know, I, I think the reasons we return to this story are really deep in our psyche. My, my teacher, the poet Jory Graham said something that I love, which is that there's no question of whether these myths ever happened it's that they are always happening inside of us. And that feels so true to me. You know, it's like we've all been Orpheus. We've probably all been Eurydice. You know, we've all felt that moment of doing the one thing that you know is going to hurt you, but you do it anyway. And feeling someone else do that to you. They're so primal that I think they don't need to be, you know, clothed in Greek, you know, in, in togas. You know, they're, they're, they're really uh, universal. And also... The funny thing is I realized pretty far into composing this piece that I sort of realized it's not really the Orpheus story that we know. The Orpheus story is woven into it, but it's really not the climax. You know, the turn, and and you can correct me if it feels wrong, Sarah, but the turn is an important moment in this opera, but for me it's not actually the essential moment. It is folded into a larger meditation on love and loss, uh, the the connection between Eurydice and her father can at times feel like the central thing. And, you know, I'm not going to give away the way that the piece ends, but it goes quite a distance beyond the look. So in a way, I think that we are both inverting the original story and I think Sarah has created a a, a new one too on top of it. Yeah, it is. I feel like it's very profoundly deeper and richer uh, from the for, for Eurydice and, and to touch on the as it were it is a bit of a love triangle in that in reuniting with her father she has to make a choice at a certain point you know that that's what we couldn't have known that you know what Eurydice had her own liberation when she died and to return back to the world above is not necessarily an automatic yeah I'm going I want to go there are things to leave behind. We were talking about this earlier today, the idea of in a relationship, who nourishes who and how even is that balance in any particular rapport. Like Popea and Nero, for example, I feel I've done Popea a lot and uh, Popea is the one who feeds and nourishes his soul, his spirit in the, in, in the opera. It's very much her who is doing the nourishing and I'm still torn about how Orpheus and Eurydice nourish each other above in, in, in the land of reality. But it's very clear that she gets huge nourishment from her father. And with Orpheus, you know, there is, it's like we've said three people in the marriage because music is the ultimate muse and she can be the muse 
to him. And, um, uh, but I've been feeling as we've been putting this up that, you know, part of the way in which she is amused to him is in the service of his composition of music, of creation. And nothing beats that. That's the thing. And, you know, if you are with a musician or you're with somebody, any kind of creative person, really, um, you know, once they're on a roll, they're on a roll. And the people around them are admi almost admirers and have to say, I, I have to go with this because this is greater than even me or our love. What I, what I love about the piece is that it gives a very rich personality to that other person. So with this piece is not saying music trumps everything else. It acknowledges that music is extremely powerful and transformative, but it really gives you a very, very rich person in Eurydice. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Given the fact that there are minor changes between the play and the opera, how much time did you spend with Sarah's play before you started, when you when you put the score away and, and you wanted the full score, had you spent some time with the play beforehand? No, I, we actually, we didn't know that it was a play. Yeah, I, I knew... Bad that, opera company. Hmm? Bad <laughs> opera company. Bad information. No, I, I didn't know that it was a play. I mean, I knew that Sarah had done the libretto, and I read that and 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 scoured that. Um, and in fact, Sarah just said to me today, she said, I'm going to give you the play, um, and I will love to read it. And, and actually, I think that would be quite good, actually, to look at the play after rather than before, because what we're doing in the room is fleshing in, you know, fleshing out, fleshing in. We're, we're, we're giving meat and bo to bones, you know, and um, the room is such a wonderful place to be at the moment uh, because there's so much creativity. But I mean, probably everybody gets up here and says that to you. But in this case, I really feel, especially with a new piece, there's just so many opportunities to take, you know, that's a ripe fruit. It's ready to, ready to be grabbed and to be devoured and squeezed. And, um, I've really enjoyed both the freedom that Mary has given us to feel things out ourselves and also her guidance. And then you guys, Sarah and Matt will suddenly say, you know, if, if we hit a little moment where we go, I'm not quite sure which way this could go. And they'll just come in very lightly and say, I think the idea when, when we were creating this was this or that or the other, they'll, 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 but they won't say, I, I expected you to do that. They'll say, this is what we're thinking. And then Mary will take that and digest that. And we'll take that and digest that. And then we'll figure out whether that's the direction to go in or, or whether it's worth experimenting in another direction. And that, that is the wonder of, of creating a new role is, is that it's impossible not to put yourself all over it, you know? So I'm very honored to be able to leave such a big fingerprint with the role because it, we are creating everything, you know, out of ink on paper, you know, it's, it's, it remains a two dimensional thing until people give it life and it needs life. And it's obviously a little bit daunting as well because the creators are with us in the room. So they have been extremely generous to us. Sarah, given that you're relatively new to our world, can you talk about your sense when you're sitting there watching, you know, we're talking about transformation and metamorphosis. Can, can you talk about the what your senses of watching this thing that you imagined um, some time ago be transformed to an opera? It must be a slightly strange experience to be sitting in the rehearsal room and watching this uh, come out in a very different way than you had originally conceived. 
Well, it's thrilling. And, and, you know, to hear Danny talk, it's, it's like you're used to watching with mortals and then you get to watch with goddesses. <laughs> we'll have a goddess doing it because actors are wonderful, but they can't sing. They can't do that. And yet Danny also can act and move around. <laughs> this is startling, uh, liquid ability that she has to do all three things. So it's like working with clay and then working in, you know, gold gilt or something. Thing. It's, it's it's exciting. And I think it's also, speaking of clay, it's like when you, when you fire something in the kiln, it comes out differently, that there's a wonder in that too, that you sculpt something and you go away for a week and you come back and the glaze has turned a shade you didn't anticipate, but it's also beautiful. So I, I welcome that. I mean, I think sometimes collaboration for a playwright is welcome. And then sometimes you want to retire and go write a couple poems all by yourself and do that. But when the collaboration is this rich and intense, it's, it's thrilling. Matt, in a way, I have the same question for you because you're in an unusual position because you've created the piece somewhat in isolation. And now there are many hundreds of people uh, that have their fingerprints all over it. And I mean, that must be a strange experience. And also because you're conducting the work, you're in a funny position where you need to have some distance between your role as composer and your role as conductor. So can you talk about what the last week's been like for you? Yeah. Conducting a piece is not the same as composing it. They're very different skills. You know, it's not just that you write it and therefore it flows out through your veins, you know, in a way that the orchestra can read. Um, you know, if I wrote a bassoon concerto, I would not be able to play that bassoon concerto. Similarly, having written this piece, I have to really approach it as if somebody else wrote it in order to be able to to perform it. Because now for these weeks, I'm a performer. I'm in there in the And can the you do that? Can you totally detach in that I way wouldn't and approach say it as totally, a conductor? But you notice it when you realize the challenges, when you go, oh, God, this part's really hard to get together. <laughs> no kidding. You know, what was the composer <laughs> thinking? You know, it's wonderful, though, because I don't have anywhere near all the skills. You know, it takes a village to bring an opera to life. And, you know, we all bring different skills to the table. For myself, I don't have a great sense of visual taste. I could never be a designer. I could never be a director. I could never be a lighting designer or costume director. So I, I don't actually have a very clear sense of what those things are going to be when I'm conceiving the piece. And so for me, I always feel a bit like, you know, kid in a candy shop, you know, with my eyes wide when they finally are presented to me. And it's very touching, actually, you know, these other fellow artists have taken it into their hearts and souls and poured so much of themselves into it and given it a body in this other way. It's really, it's extraordinary. And I have to say, this, this really is, is, is true in this case, that we have a, an amazingly committed team, uh, you know, a really committed, egoless, curious bunch of artists in the room, you know, and there are people like Rod Guilfrey, uh, who you must know very well here at LA Opera. People are nodding. You know, he's been singing on this stage since since the company was founded. You know, Rod and I, Rod sang the title role of my last opera. We know each other very well. He knows my musical language very well. And so it really feels like visiting an old friend um, to, to return to that collaboration. It's really a joy. And the funny thing with our director, Mary Zimmerman, you know, Mary is, a, is also a creative artist. She conceives, devises her own plays, her own theater pieces of many kinds. And so the, the energy that she brings is 
creative in a way that not all stage directors bring. Um, And so I've wanted to really step back. You know, you don't want to feel as a creator like you're just hovering, you know, like you, as if you have all the answers and you're just waiting for them to pick the right multiple choice answer. You know, that's a horrible thing. So it's, it, it, as, as you suggested, Danny, it is, it, it's actually kind of fun for me to sort of sit back and see what Mary does with the staging. And then, as you said, if she gets stuck, of course, I'm happy to say, well, what I was thinking here was X. It doesn't mean you have to do X exactly. What's so great is that, if I can sing your praises for a minute, that Matt, so much of what he's composed is so, I mean, it is tangible color, in a way, I don't know how else to describe it, but some things are really clear in terms of the color that the writing underneath evokes through a vocal line. In other pieces, it could be a multiple choice. And there are moments when it just isn't. It's really clear. And that goes also with for Sarah. I mean, I do you remember when we met at Glenborn? I was saying to you that um, reading just the libretto evoked a whole set in my mind. It was almost impossible for it to be any other way except the way that it was evoked to me through reading the libretto. And Mary too, she's, you know, she has this great balance between being incredibly logical and incredibly visceral. And, uh, you know, sometimes she has to feel her way through things and she'll, she'll come up with some ideas, but needing to listen to it in order for it to come out through her and um I think in a way I'm quite similar I I listen and react and and that I think makes us work quite well together I've really enjoyed knowing her through this process I I think those remarks may may belie the complexity of the music that Matt has written and and I use that as a as a compliment because I, I think it has every musician that I have worked with that has worked with Matt has come to really admire your work from within but everyone acknowledges that it, it really takes it takes effort to unlock and what was amazing to me frankly Danny when uh, the first day of rehearsal is in a music rehearsal was just the kind of the ease with which you had slipped into that idiom which you know, for Rod is maybe not surprising because as Matt put it out, they had worked together before. So can you can you maybe talk a little bit about your process of getting it into your bones? Yes, this score is incredibly hard and it doesn't kind of sound hard. Even if I listen to some of the other pages, I think, oh, that sounds kind of like the... But on the page... Uh, <laughs> no, it's not Sorry. polka, but there, there's a good theme that's like, it goes... There's a theme like that. It's at the wedding party. And again, it's one of those things like you could just sing that, right? That sounds pretty easy. But when you see it on Everyone. the page... Everyone. <laughs> together now. <laughs> but when you see it on the page, it, it looks like sort of like the worst scrabble you've ever seen. <laughs> and I mean, I'm, I'm really not kidding here. Like the, the, the bars, the meters on any given page could change maybe seven times. And they are all with reason. They're totally with reason. That's what I've learned is like, um, you know, I have passages where I go from three, four to three, two, three, four, three, two. And you think, well, why didn't we just pick one and then just settle on that one? But no, it needs to swing in a particular way. And you see that when it, what you have to do is sort of break it down. And I learned the score by myself and I just sat a lot at the, the, the piano pulling out where the pulses are only to relinquish them later on. And that is one of my favorite things about doing new music. And I, I've been lucky to do 
a lot of it periodically over my career. So it's not like I never did it and then suddenly took it up. But for me, the key to doing justice to any modern piece is it's actually, it's a, it's like the key to the last door before it goes onto the stage or before you've, like it's the last thing you do before the role is ready, which is that final step of integrating the music into your body and voice to the point that it doesn't feel like rhythmical music anymore. The words and the text and the sound should just trip out of your mouth. It should just fall right down and, and it should feel like there was no other way to say that. That's just was literally the way that I said it. And then you can look at that on the page and it's like, but if you sing, it sounds, you, you, an audience will become immediately aware of how difficult the piece sounds, you know, and that's the last thing I want anyone to be thinking about how difficult it seems. But you're right, Chris, it's totally difficult. And, and it is one of those pieces that, um, your writing is so great, that it's one of those pieces that when you're in that preliminary stage of just working out where the beats go, and as a singer, I feel you have to know that. I mean, I, I don't know if you've noticed, but like sometimes when I'm going through it, I'm sort of semi-conducting it myself. Because when I learn music that's as difficult as this, I have to be able to conduct it because you might change your mind. You might want to do it slower or faster. And if I'm only going based on what my ear hears or what surrounding instruments I'm expecting to hear on a particular beat, I won't be there if you suddenly go slower one day. And that is absolutely what can happen because we're human and we breathe differently every day. So, but of course, once you know all of that, you go back to da, 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 da. Oh, that's what it is. It's like, you know, it, it sinks really beautifully. But in order for that to happen on the page, it's got to be a bit complicated because I told you this the other day. Do you remember? If you look at something like as time goes by, you know, the song, you must remember this, a kiss is still a kiss. On the page, it goes, you must remember this. A kiss is just a kiss. And it just sounds so regular. And it was the composer of that time, they, it was an understood thing. Okay, you're gonna release this, you're gonna pick this up and you're gonna swing it. You're gonna, you're gonna say the melody like you would speak it. But we don't live in those times anymore and not everybody has that idiom. And so um, it must've been an absolutely monumental task to do, but you said you spoke things a lot and kind of, that's why we have so many quintuplets in there, isn't it? <laughs> I'm sure that's why. Well, yeah, you actually, I feel like you hit the nail on the head talking about, for example, as time goes by, this is largely a question of how we communicate an expressive intention. If you live in a world where there's only one musical language around, like if you lived in a small Italian city in 1820, you know, bel canto would have been your currency and Bellini and Donizetti made, it was pretty easy for them to use a kind of shorthand. And you know, the bel canto singers, just as much as jazz artists take there's push and pull. There's actually an understanding that you will not do what's on the page. And the Monteverdi, the even more even bare bones. More. I mean, just bones. And then they just expect the musicians to know what to do. And we live in a moment now of pretty specific notation. And I've decided to use that <laughs> to my advantage, hopefully, and to be quite specific about the way that uh, speech patterns are musicalized. And also, you know, American English is a very strange funky language that has a lot of tough, weird sounds. And I also love that, you know, it's not Italian or, you know, God forbid French, which are sort of all, they tend to be quite soft. There's, there's not as much internal variety and English has all these, it has bones and sinews and it, yeah. it's 
weird. And I want to use that. I want to use that as, as the material of the music. And so often the way that I do work in writing is to, you know, read Sarah's line, go, okay, what is the, you know, what is the character feeling? What is the atmosphere? What's the musical atmosphere going to be? What's the intention? So how does the character say it? How long does it take? Is it super extended? Is it slow-mo the matrix motion or is it really quick or, you know, or is it natural? What is it? And then once I find that pacing, I go, okay, what did I just do? What actually is the clearest way I can notate that? And what I love about what you said, Denny, I think it was back in New York, was that you first learned it in a slightly mathematical way. Like, okay, this is exactly how it fits together. And then you were like, oh, I see the whole shape. And that's for me is the dream is because I don't want you to treat it like a math problem if you're performing it. I want the singer, the performer of any kind to sort of see the shape and you do, (laughs) which is really gratifying. We had such a funny little thing happen in New York because Rod and I are both American. But uh, so we started singing this and there was a scene about a letter and um, he said, a letter for you, miss. And I said, a letter, a letter. addressed to you and then Matt said I was like uh no um I, I think this is kind of a bit more American American and um and um and then Rod and I both American completely forgot how to say the word letter so then the scene went a letter for you miss a letter a letter it became this John Wayne thing it, it was, was so of- weird because we don't do American English in English music in English. Even opera. American singers learn to sing we learn in a British to, way. To, to say it like in the English way. And it's very funny breaking apart. Now I think we've got it now. Now I we're like you, yeah. we're in the American. It's letter. Yeah, yeah. It's letter. It's letter. <laughs> I just want to end on a, a note of collaboration, which is that I think it's worth pointing out that this is the first time, Matt, that you have written an opera not with your own libretto. And so in describing setting Sarah's text in the way that you just did, I think it's interesting to think about the ways in which your music has been changed, metamorphosized, transformed by by Sarah's language rather than your own. Can you just address that briefly before we turn it to the audience? Yes. It's been liberating, sort of counterintuitively, because when you write your own libretto, you have to be your own worst enemy, harshest critic. You know, you have to sort of play both roles. And it's been a liberation to have a different kind of sensibility to engage with. And I think it's brought out qualities in my music that were latent, but that hadn't been expressed. Um, Specifically two things, I think. One is this extraordinary emotional transparency that I find in, in Sarah's writing. There was something that you told me that an actress who'd played Eurydice said, which is that there are no columns to hide behind, which I find so beautiful. You know, of course there are literally no columns in our underworld, but also in the language, there's no ironic distancing. There's no posturing. It is these often quite primal and quite specific human emotions and emotional situations laid bare. It's, it's transparent. And that takes real artistic courage. Um, and I, you know, in writing the piece, I, I would do it. I would, I would engage with it. And then you always have that moment of going, Oh my, did I really just say that? Did I really like in your, this is what it is to love an artist aria, this, this really quite emotional aria of Eurydice afterwards, you kind of go, I feel so naked. I feel so vulnerable, but I think it's actually an act of artistic courage to then say, I've done it and I'm going to share it. 
Um, and I think Sarah's writing has helped me to do that in a different way. Um, and the other thing is the humor. Yeah. is the sense of humor and the sense of just, it, you know, you can really let loose some wild energies in opera if you if you kind of accept the absurdity of it, because <laughs> it's an absurd art form in many ways. And, and it, we shouldn't be ashamed of that. We should embrace it. So that's something that I think is new and fresh. Yeah, I, and I would say that from my point of view, that the journey from those comic moments to the tragic ones is so far a distance that, of course, it makes... The, the extremity of those poles all all the more um, effective, I think, in the theater. So, so I want to thank Sarah and Matt and Danny for their time this evening. Uh, I'm so looking forward to sharing their work with you. Tickets to LA Opera's 22-23 season are available now at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Bye.